Good evening. New York ends most mandates in a bid to get tourists back to the city hit hard by COVID. International Women's Day and the fight to save a woman's right to choose. A fire at a nuke plant in Ukraine brings back memories of a nuclear disaster as Putin warns against a no-fly zone. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the WBAI News for Sunday, March 6, 2022. And starting with local news. Tomorrow, the city of New York will end two pandemic-era policies that have become fixtures of city life for many residents, requiring people entering restaurants, entertainment venues, and fitness centers to show proof of vaccination and mandated masking in schools for most students. Mayor Eric Adams announced the changes at a Times Square news conference on Friday, saying that the changes would together help revitalize the city, ushering in more economic activity and greater connection between students and teachers. And I'm glad to say that the rates are low enough that the mandatory program is no longer needed. No longer needed. Beginning Monday, March 7th, we will be suspending the requirements under Key to NYC. And so folks can come in and enjoy uh, the restaurants, enjoy the businesses, and be a part of this great city without uh, having to show proof of vaccination. So that means our restaurants, our businesses, and our concert venues will no longer need to require patrons uh, to, provi- to provide this proof. Uh, now, restaurants, they still can use their discretion if they desire. It's up to them. Uh, but the overall restriction is being removed. This is about giving people the flexibility that is needed to continue to allow not only safety, but we have to get our economy back on track. It's time to open our city and get the economy back operating. And just like our economy, we're making some changes in our schools to make it easier for students and staff. Our schools have been uh, some of the safest places. I said this over and over again. When the calls were made to close down the schools, we said no. Schools are the safest places, and we're keeping our schools safe and open, and we were able to do that. As of this week, the school's positivity rate is 0.18%. And so I'm announcing today that we are lifting the indoors mask requirements for DOE schools between, the eight, between K through 12 starting Monday, March 7th. And that is a great initiative. And I know there's some who state that they still want their children to wear their mask. You can. We are not going to get in the way of your discretion, and we want New Yorkers to be smart, flexibility, and to be able to feel comfortable without any bullying or without any teasing. If you feel comfortable in wearing your mask, feel free to do so. I, from time to time, wear mine until we get to a point where we can wean off and get the comfortability that we want. Masks will now be an option in indoor settings and will be available for students and staff and anyone who wants to wear one because we want to give people that comfort level. But the great part of this, you know, I know you missed it and I missed, missed it. We want to see the faces of our children. We want to see their smiles. We want to see how happy they are. We want to see when they're feeling sad so that we can be there to comfort them. And the mask prevented us from doing so for almost two years. And it's happy to see those smiles again. And we will continue to keep our schools safe. But I'll stay safe 
and stay open plan, including doubling down on surveillance as we have done. 85,000 students and staff are tested weekly as part of this program. And as Mayor Eric Adams, he added that vaccine mandates will remain effect, in effect for private employers and for city workers. Meanwhile, don't toss out your masks yet. Individual businesses can continue to require vaccinations if they choose to. Adams says city lawyers he spoke to agree those businesses will not be violating the law by continuing to require proof of vaccination. Some venues have already signaled that they aren't ready to drop the requirements. The Broadway League, the trade association for the city's biggest theaters, says vaccination proof and masking in the theater will remain in place through April 1st when it will next update its rules. Barclays Center, however, says it will no longer require proof of vaccination for Brooklyn Net games and other events. Not everyone is happy with Adams' pronouncement. Comptroller Brad Lander, public advocate Jumani Williams, and Manhattan Borough President Mark Levine listed health measures they wanted the city to implement as it lifts the vaccination and masking requirements, including maintaining a testing core that would be ready for a new variant. Williams called it unnecessary and unwise to get rid of key to New York City, which is the name of the mandate policy put in place under Mayor de Blasio. Today is International Women's Day. Uh, uh, Pardon me, Tuesday. My mistake. Tuesday is International Women's Day. That's May 8th, a worldwide event only recently becoming popular in the United States. It marks not just a day to give mom a bunch of flowers or take a girlfriend out to dinner like Mother's Day or Valentine's Day. It's a day to celebrate political advances like the right of women to vote. Universal in the U.S. for only about 100 years or more recently the right to choose an abortion under assault in many states, in Texas, where private citizens can sue doctors who provide abortions, and Mississippi, where a law greatly restricting the right is before the Supreme Court. Rallies for women are held all over the world, like one yesterday in London. Here in the U.S., the executive director of Women's E! News is Lori Sokol. She's working on a rally in Union Square in Manhattan on Tuesday at 3 p.m., held along with others throughout the country. She says the attacks on abortion are really an attack on all women and the rights many men have as well. We would not be having this discussion. Even more so, we would not be having this discussion if men could get pregnant. We would not be having this discussion at all, right? This is about controlling women's wombs and enslaving women so that they are unable to be free in our society. And even worse, it is uh, women of color that even are more affected by this, okay? Because the restrictions that are being put in place are impacting women of color more, um, particularly those who are low income, Already in Texas, what is happening in Texas, these women do not have the money to fly to another state to get a legal abortion, right? They do not, they can, cannot take off even the number of work days to be able to do that, let alone if there are any complications. Uh, if you look at countries where women, where abortion is legal and when it, where it's not legal, there's no greater number, there, no, there's no greater number of abortions in either country. This, it's the same number of, pretty much the same number of abortions in every country, whether abortion is legal or illegal. The difference is more women die in the countries where abortion is illegal because they have to take desperate measures mm-hmm. to get abortion. So for all those who say that they are pro-life, which is not true, if they were pro-life, they would um, provide these 
free and supportive resources and services to pregnant women and their newborns. That would, that's what being pro-life would be, but they are not. Um, they are anti-woman's choice. They don't want women to have agency and control over their own bodies. They want to control women's wombs, and that's what this is really about, and that's the truth. Right? You're direct, I'm direct, this is exactly what this is about. And it's right. time to face that. So we've got to get people out in the streets on March 8th to protest because it is the only thing that has ever worked. And it's the only thing that will work. It is amazing that in Texas, when the number of, of, of weeks was decreased so significantly, there was not outrage in this country about it. It's just, it's outrageous. <laughs> there was not outrage. And that's what Republican Congress people and those who, who support, who are anti-abortionists, are counting on that there is no huge mass protest in the streets. And so that they can chip away at women's reproductive rights and ownership over their own body, piece by piece by piece, until Roe v. Wade is overturned. And that's essentially what looks like it's going to happen unless we do something very quickly and in mass force. Too often, of course, in patriarchal societies like the United States, uh, when it's a, an issue that only involves women, it doesn't seem to attract much attention because women are still considered second-class citizens in patriarchal societies but the, like the U.S. But we need to understand that Roe is not just about abortion. What Roe did was it solidified and expanded everybody's constitutional right to privacy. So should Roe be overturned, not only will that end women's right to reproductive choice and to have control over their own bodies, it will interfere with and it will jeopardize people's right to contraception and marriage and family relations and child rearing and intimacy and marriage equality, to name just a few. On Sunday, just this past Sunday, we were at St. Patrick's Cathedral, in front of the cathedral, again, speaking about the importance for anyone who's willing to hear about the importance of why it is crucial to ensure that Roe v. Wade stands. And now, as, as you began, March 8th uh, is a very important day for women around the world, International Women's Day. We're planning rallies throughout this country in major cities throughout this country, including New York City, where we have a number of speakers planned, like V. Eve Ensler uh, being one of them, to rally for abortion rights. Uh, and we're trying to get as many people out in the street as possible, because as we know, and as uh, Margaret Mead w once said, the only way that women, that anything has changed in our country is by a group of people starting to get out in the streets and protest and then bringing other people in to do so as well. As we know, just last week in Colombia, one of the most Catholic states in the world, right, has finally decriminalized abortion up to six months. That had never happened before. Lori Sokol, she's the executive director of Women's E-News. The rally in Union Square is in Manhattan at Union Square. Right, as I said, on Tuesday at 3 p.m. And in international news, by the way, you're listening to WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo.
Persistent fighting blocked efforts to evacuate 200,000 people from the besieged Ukrainian city of Mariupol for a second day in a row today as Russian President Vladimir Putin vowed to press ahead with his offensive, which he said was going to plan unless Kyiv surrendered. Most people trapped in the port city are sleeping underground to escape more than six days of near constant shelling by encircling Russian forces that has cut off food, water, power and heating supplies. The United Nations said on Sunday that the civilian death toll from hostilities across Ukraine since Moscow launched its uh, invasion on February 24th stood at 364, including more than 20 children. Meanwhile, Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, accused Russian forces of war crimes as attacks on the city's uh, cities intensified. The country's cities, various cities intensified as Russian troops have stalled in their approach to the capital of Kiev. Planning to bombard Odessa, the Russians always used to come to Odessa and they felt only warmth, only sincerity in Odessa. And now bombs are coming against Odessa, artillery, missiles. This is going to be a war crime, a historic crime. And that was a translation of Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine. Odessa is the last city on the Black Sea, the last port city still in Ukrainian hands or at least completely in Ukrainian hands. And if it was lost, that would basically cut off Ukraine's access to the sea. In related news, Poland reported it has taken in a million refugees since the recent war between Russia and Ukraine broke out, a special military operation to Russian forces and invasion to Ukraine and its allies, like the United States. The refugee crisis comes as the safe passage of civilians from the besieged eastern port city Mariupol was halted for a second consecutive day after the agreed ceasefire was violated within hours of its planned implementation by both combatants, or at least both combatants uh, accused the other. Yesterday, an angry Russian president, Vladimir Putin, directly responded to calls from some Republicans and others in the United States for a so-called no-fly zone over Ukraine that would prevent Russian jets or would send in U.S. Uh, air and NATO air power over into Ukrainian airspace in order to uh, prevent Russian jets from supporting the ground fighting and under the guise of uh, uh, helping the people on the ground. Putin says he's sure the West is not serious about directly joining the fight. It is introduced. If there is uh, external aggression, if there is any military threat, hopefully it will not happen despite some statements made by the Western officials. Now we hear that the no-fly zone should be introduced above the territory of Ukraine. It can only be done from some adjacent countries, but any steps in this regard will be seen by us as participation in the armed conflict by the country from where the threat will be posed to our security. That very second we will see this country is the participant of a military conflict, and we won't care, member of which alliance or bloc they will be. I apologize for saying member. I hope there is understanding of that, and uh, it won't come to that. Vladimir Putin. Russian forces have now put staff at Europe's largest nuclear plant under their command and cut off their ability to communicate with Ukraine's nuclear regulatory. That's according to the UN's International Atomic Energy Agency today. The Zaporizhia 
nuclear power plant, which is located about 350 miles southeast of Kiev, was originally seized by Russian troops on Friday after an adjacent five-story training facility was set on fire by Russian projectiles. Linda Greenfield-Thomas is the United States ambassador to the UN. At a special uh, meeting of the UN Secretary uh, General, uh, Secretary General, the uh, uh, the um, the top body of the United Nations, uh, Thomas, uh, that was called by the United States in reaction to the uh, the attack or the uh, uh, firing that happened at the nuclear plant, uh, she said that uh, or accused Russia of reckless behavior. We've just witnessed a dangerous new escalation that represents a dire threat to all of Europe and the world. Russia's attack last night put Europe's largest nuclear power at grave risk. It was incredibly reckless and dangerous, and it threatened the safety of civilians across Russia, Ukraine, and Europe. As a first step, we call on Russia to withdraw its troops from the plant to permit medical treatment for injured personnel. The United States remains highly concerned that Russian military forces controlling the Chernobyl site have not permitted operators there to have a shift change since last week. We've just witnessed a dangerous new escalation that represents a dire threat to all of Europe and the world. And that was uh, Linda Greenfield-Thomas. She's the uh, uh, U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. The IAEA says that the fire did not affect any essential equipment, and Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm confirmed that the plant's reactors are protected by robust containment structures. While two of the plant's six nuclear reactors were operating at or near, near, at or near full capacity today – while two were in cold shutdown, one was cooling down for a cold reserve state, and the sixth was in planned maintenance until later this year. And Secretary of State Antony Blinken was at the Polish border, where uh, many of those uh, million or so refugees have been crossing in a constant stream from Ukraine as the war continues. He met with the uh, foreign minister, his counterpart, uh, Foreign Minister Kuebela of uh, Ukraine, my colleague, Dmitry Kuleba, the foreign minister of Ukraine. Um, we've seen an extraordinary surge in uh, support from around the world against Russia's aggression, against Russia's war of choice, against uh, what is happening every single day, every single minute uh, in Ukraine to civilians throughout the country as a result of this aggression. Uh, pressure too will not will not only continue; it will grow until this war, this war of choice, is brought to an end. Well, first of all, I would like to thank Tony for coming here to Ukraine. Literally, we just crossed the line, and uh, we are standing here. Uh, I hope the people of Ukraine will be able to uh, to see this as a clear manifestation that we have friends who literally stay stand by us. Ukraine will win this war anyway because this is the people's war for their land and we defend the right cause. The question is the price, the price of our victory. And if our partners continue to take bold systemic decisions to step up economic and political pressure on Ukraine, if they continue to provide us 
with necessary weapons, the price will be lower. And that was the foreign minister of Ukraine, Dmitro Kabela, and he was uh, touring the border between Ukraine and Poland with the United States Secretary of State. Antony Blinken. In more news from Ukraine, uh, the uh, mission of the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe reports that uh, basically the mission that is supposed to watch the war and watch what was going on in Ukraine for the international community is withdrawing its last remaining members, its chief monitor and senior management team, uh, relocation, relocating uh, mission members formerly stationed in a central Ukrainian city. Uh, because of the unsafe conditions. Uh, the mission says it received reports that its uh, premises, its offices in Mariupol were damaged due to shelling and all sides were notified uh, even after all sides were notified about the coordinates of their facility. It uh, continues its evacuate, evacuate, evacuation activities as instructed since February 24th uh, and uh, today it reported the evacuation of the Kyrgyzstan monitoring team to uh, the Russian Federation. Kherson is a port city that was taken over just a couple of days ago by uh, Russian combatants. And in local news, a good news for some retirees uh, who are city workers, uh, their health plan that they've been fighting to keep, which the city wanted to unilaterally change on them, was uh, was protected by a judge's order. We spoke with uh, Marian Pizzatola, who uh, is with a group that brought a lawsuit that, uh, surprisingly, they won from the city. It's rare that uh, one gets a victory over the city in a case like that, that uh, allows these workers, retired workers, to keep their original health plan. She spoke with WBAI on Friday, on Thursday enrolling all Medicare eligible retirees into the program, this new plan. And the only way to get out was to opt out. But by doing so, you were agreeing to pay a newly imposed penalty type premium to keep the plan that you've had, in some cases, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Uh, on Tuesday, the judge asked the city of New York, hey, you know, what is the benchmark? What is the cap of the HMO cap? And he said, oh, it's $776, said the city. The judge said, okay, second question, is the GHI plan, the Medigap plan that most retirees have, is that under the cap? And the city said, yes, sir, it is. Thank you very much, judge said, have a nice day. Well, then yesterday, that was Wednesday, the city decided to walk back its answer and pretend like it didn't understand the definition of what the, what the judge asked and said, oh, well, the rate for the new Medicare Advantage plan is $7.50 a month. So as long as any plan is over $7.50, $7.50, you'd have to pay for it. Where the heck do you get $7.50? Like nothing $7.50. The attorneys very quickly had to write a reply, and it got filed early this morning. The judge rendered his decision today in favor of the retirees. And basically what he said was as long as the benchmark, the plan that the cities are offering is under the benchmark, then the city has to pay for it. What does that mean for our listeners as far as their insurance plans? This affects every city, New York City retiree that was a municipal retiree, i.e. you work for the city of New York. And what it means is that going forward, you have the choice of either staying in or opting out of the Medicare Advantage plan. And if you choose to stay in your current health plan that was offered by the city, the city can't charge you to stay in that plan as long as the rate is under the cap, period. What about this argument that the mayors made? I forget which one. Maybe it was de Blasio that... Uh, 
oh, you people just want to get covered for everything. You just, like, complain about everything. Complainers, no, no. See, what happened is, is a municipal employee, when you became an employee in the city of New York, you knew that you were not going to be making a salary like your private counterparts because your, your benefits were going to be better. We knew that. We knew you'd have the pension. We knew we would have deferred comp. We knew that we would have health insurance. We knew we'd have all of these things, union prescription coverage. We knew. And that, and we knew at the time of employment, because, of course, it was advertised in our documents, you know, to, to advertise for our jobs, that you would have this health insurance for you and your family till your death, because that's what most of our summary plan descriptions actually state. You will have the health employment, health coverage in your retirement that you had as an employee until you die. Can't get any more blunt than that. So I didn't mind taking a reduced income salary because I figured, you know what? I may not make a hundred thousand dollars working working for the fire department in New York City, uh, you know, on the street. Uh, whereas my private ho- private ambulance or private hospital workers might make more money, but I've got the benefits that they don't have, and my future is more important. I know I'm young. I can work overtime. I can work two jobs. I'm good with that. And you also wanted stability. A civil service job is golden. You didn't have to worry that you'd be laid off because of susceptibility of the, uh, uh, you know, of the economy. So that was a protection you wanted. So we're not complaining. We we only want what we were owed. We know what we were owed. Clearly, so did the judge because we remember these laws were in place. Our contracts were in place. We had documents from our unions, documents from the city. History repeats itself. You you, you don't screw with a retiree. That they did this purposely. This was predicated on the backs of a retired person so that they can fund active union raises and contract increases. That's ugly. And that's Marianne Pizzatola. She is the director of New York City Organization of Public Service Retirees. And the uh, UFT president, Michael Mulgrew, weighed in. He said that the UFT believes in the New York City Medicare Advantage plan and the excellent range of benefits it would have provided our retirees. However, he says the judge's recent decision will effectively eliminate the savings the plan would have produced, and that would have been reinvested in health benefits for our members. While the New York City Medicare Advantage plan is sound, the program has suffered from serious implementation problems and poor legal arguments, particularly on the part of the city. Our retirees deserve better, Mulgrew says. Given the judge's order, the UFT is withdrawing its support for starting the New York City Medicare Advantage Plan Plus plan on April 1st, 2022, and will urge the Municipal Labor Committee to suspend its efforts to begin the program until all implementation and legal issues are resolved.